On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, filling in, we're talking about vaccinations because new studies are showing if you take one and mix it with another, it actually could work really, really well, maybe better. Which ones should you mix? Oh, well, stick around and find out. We're also going to be talking about immigration. The government of Canada is looking to start plumping up its immigration numbers again now that COVID seems to be on the backside of the hill. How much, though, should we open the gates? It's a very fair, a very real question based on our current situation with our social safety net and housing and a lot of other things. What should we do? We're going to talk about that. And many of you, many of you did not follow COVID rules. How do we know? Well, they did a poll. They found out how many. Stick around and find out that too. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Last day of school today for those elementary students. I don't know how they're going to tell the difference since they've been home for the last number of months, but school is finally out. So way to go, you elementary students and parents who now, well, normally you'd be saying, hey, I got to find something for my kids to do. You've been doing that now for months. So good luck finding something new for your kids to do, I guess. But there you go, the end of school. It's always a, it's always an occasion to be marked. I've always wondered, by the way, Scott Thompson show, Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson here on 900 CHML. I've always wondered why parents always take the photo of the first day of school with their kids, all dressed up, looking nice, carrying their lunchbox, maybe in their uniform. Nobody seems to take the last day of school when the kid is just probably because you can't get a good shot because the kid is sprinting out of the school and it would be a fuzzy photo. Anyway, last day of school. Congratulations to all you kids and to all you parents who have survived this COVID year of school. As I said, Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson this week. If you hear any noise, any banging in the background, because I'm doing this from the home office, we got a garage door going in today and it was amazing. I, I walked out to get to see how the garage door pro- progress was going. And Cody, who's out there doing an amazing job right now, has CHML on listening to the Bill Kelly show, regular listener. So you know what? That was that was awesome. Not only great new garage doors, but a, a supporter, a listener as well. I mean, there are lots of them, but appreciate that. We've got a full, full show today, as I said. But I want to kick off today with some news that, um, well, if you were one of those people who have had your shot or shots for COVID, and if one or both were AstraZeneca, You're going to want to pay attention to this information because Oxford University has found that mixing Pfizer and AstraZeneca in either order, Pfizer first, AstraZeneca second, or vice versa, is better than two shots of AstraZeneca alone. And now this is significant because Oxford, the people who did this study, Oxford is the place where AstraZeneca was developed. So You know, if ever there was a place that was going to say, oh, no, it's perfect, it's fine, it's the best, you might think it's there. But no, they're being apparently honest and they're looking at this scientifically and they're saying a mixture is the best option. Dr. Don Bowdish is a tenured professor of pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster University and Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity with the DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research. Thank you so much for the time today. Very much appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. I'm going to follow your whole show with interest as a professor with a high salary who lives in Dundas. I think (laughs) we've covered all the bases. Are you a Montreal (laughs) Canadiens fan too? That would make it a clean sweep. That's right. 
Um, there is, um, there is so much information flying around these days about COVID that truly nobody can possibly keep track of everything. But this is something that we've been hearing for a little while. This is not brand new news. Is it about the mixing and or about the AstraZeneca only? We've heard this before, have we not? Yeah, actually, one of the things that, you know, it's a special time to be an immunologist because all of a sudden everyone knows a little bit more about my field. But one of the things that in immunology we've known for for decades is, is mixing and matching different platforms or technologies for vaccination often works better. And that's because each of these uh, vaccines you know, has things, strengths and weakness, and they show different arms of the immune system, different parts of the virus. And so when you mix and match, you often end up getting the best of all worlds. You get good cellular immunity, you get good antibodies. And so to be honest, if you'd asked me to predict before the study came out, what would be, you know, my preferred, what would be the one that would really give long lasting, really high level of protection, I would have predicted mixing the AstraZeneca, which is based on a virus and the one of the mRNA vaccines as being a really good choice. Do we do this with other vaccines. Now, I, I know we don't have too many that we do in such succession like this, but if you go to get a booster, mm-hmm. do we ask that the booster shot be a different make than the one we had initially, or is this unique in this situation? Well, interestingly, I'm uh, a, you know an immunologist who practices what I preach. I get my flu shot every year, and I bet if I looked back, I would find that I'd, seen, I'd had all sorts of different kinds of flu shots. I would hmm. have had slightly different technologies. I would have had different brands. I would have had different manufacturers. I recently got my tetanus booster, and again, I'd be in no way able to tell you uh, what brand or who the supplier was or who, you know, every 10 years for the past uh, 45, I've been getting the the tetanus shot from. So effectively, we we do this all the time, and as long as the vaccine is proven to be effective, we really don't worry too much about keeping uh, the suppliers matched. Where, you know, this situation is a little bit unique is the AstraZeneca had some side effects that normally we would not tolerate a one in 55,000. We would not put a vaccine on the Canadian market with those sorts of side effects unless there was some really uh, obvious reason to do so. And so this is where the situation is a little bit unique that, uh, mm. that we're now offering people a different vaccine for their second shot to keep that, those risks at bay. Well, it- and I mean, maybe you as an expert in the field would know the names of the manufacturers, but I'm positive that if I walked out onto the street and asked a thousand Hamiltonians who makes your flu shot, <laughs> nobody would have a clue who it is. It's no. just the flu shot. We just assume it's, exactly. you know, made at the flu shot incorporated company or something. Exactly. I mean, I yes, that's right. um, and in truth, we do get different kinds based on, uh, you know, procurement deals that, that mm. uh, governmental organizations make. So you're not even getting the same type of shot every year necessarily. This study does not mention Moderna, um, no. probably because they I, I, maybe they just didn't do it. But any reason to think that the same wouldn't apply? Just translate, take out Pfizer and put in Moderna, and it's the same result. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are so comparable that uh, there's no reason to believe that there'd be any difference. If anything, the Moderna might even have higher levels because it uses slightly more mRNA than the Pfizer one, but. There's no reason not to assume that they wouldn't be equivalent. So if you've got AstraZeneca as your first dose, congratulations. You made a, you know, the right decision for you and our family and our community to end this pandemic. And now, lucky you, you're going to get one of these mRNA vaccines that's going to give you excellent cellular immunity and antibody-based immunity. So I'm really excited for those folks. But some people have received two shots and they've both been AstraZeneca, correct? Sure. And, you know, as we're watching the UK, the UK got out of a really horrific 
third wave. Just, you know, as bad as it was here, it was so much worse there. They got that, through that through primarily AstraZeneca, and most of their folks are double-dosed there. So Astra, all these vaccines are great. I mean, they have so far surpassed our expectations for what they would be able to do that any choice, any vaccine combination that you get is, is a great choice. Because I'm guessing that when people start hearing this news that a study says, look, the best thing is to get AstraZeneca, or if you get AstraZeneca, get Pfizer or Moderna as well. There are going to be people who are listening going, well, wait a second. I, they gave me two AstraZeneca, and now I feel like I am I got ripped off here. What do I need to do? Should I be angry that I haven't gotten the full coverage? Well, let's keep the study in perspective. What it basically measured is it measured how many antibodies and how many immune cells you had after these different combinations of getting the same thing or getting a mix and match. But what they were not able to measure, because there just were no longer enough infections around, is do they protect us better? So oftentimes in, in vaccines and in immunology, we have responses that are surplus to requirements. You know, some of those antibody levels are so eye-wateringly high that they've probably passed the threshold of protection and are, are really, really high. And I can give you another example of this. For example, the measles vaccine, if you've had that, you will probably die with more antibodies than you possibly need to deal with measles. So what they have looked at is how strong these immune responses, which is good, but they haven't looked at, at if they are, like I said, surplus to requirements, if they're actually required to keep people protected. So don't worry, you know, the levels of protection we would predict for you if you've got two doses are not significantly different than if you've mixed and matched. There is also a separate piece from another study. There are so many studies flying around. I mean, the, the study industry right now is doing very well. Um, but there's another study in the journal Nature that says Pfizer and Moderna, again, it doesn't mention AstraZeneca, don't know why, but Pfizer and Moderna are likely to produce lasting immunity. And when I hear yeah. that word, I don't know what that means. What does mm -hmm. lasting immunity mean? Is that months? Is that years? Is that indefinite? What does that mean? Yeah, well, unfortunately, the only thing that we can, we can't rush time. So we can look at how strong those immune responses and how many immune cells. And basically what they looked at in that study is they said, okay, we, antibodies are made by these cells called B, B cells. More B cells is generally good because even if those antibodies decrease in your blood, so we can't find them anymore, as long as you've got a bank of B cells waiting to jump into action next time they see a, a coronavirus, then then you're going to be okay. And they found that there were so many of these B cells in there. And so we're all very enthusiastic. However, we must keep these things in perspective because we, you know, we, like I said, we can't rush time. And if I were to look at you after a tetanus shot, you would have a lot of B cells and a lot of antibodies, but we know you have to go back every 10 years for a tetanus shot. So nobody can tell you how long these immune responses are last. But based on all our, our inferences, it looks really great. Unfortunately, what we can't predict is what are the new variants going to look like. As right. an example, you know, if we have a totally new variant that can evade the vaccine we've been given, we're going to have to have another one, even if we'd still be protected against those original strains we were vaccinated against. Right. So when I go or you go or people who are listening, if they do go for their annual flu shot, it's not the same mixture every year the scientists have guessed or used their best guess of what the strain of the influenza is going to be and created something for that year is that what we're going to see down the road for it's covid that looking, as the variants yeah. come along we have to mix it up it looks more and more like that you know when we were at the beginning of this in march 2020 and we were starting to get hints that our strategy to making these vaccines was going to work people were pretty excited that we would be able to kick this thing 
And the reason is the coronaviruses, unlike the influenza virus, are pretty slow at developing mutations. And they're not, you know, they're not quite like the flu shot. However, the sheer number of infections in this world, I mean, there have been trillions, hundreds of billions of viruses going around the world. And so just statistically, that means there's more chances for them to pick up mutations. And as a consequence, we are starting to see mutations that are allowing them to sneak under the vaccination response. Mm. As of right now, if everyone in Canada did their due diligence, kids, adults, everybody went and got their two shots, we might be able to, to kick the Delta variant. But however, we are going to be watching and waiting and looking at parts of the world that are slow to vaccinate or unable to vaccinate because if a mm. few more mutations and then those viruses will now be able to sneak under our, our immune protection. Yeah, and, and you know, as someone who has had malaria after spending a summer mm-hmm. doing volunteer work in the jungle, but taking malaria pills, and then later they said, oh yeah, but you only took the ones for a certain kind of malaria. It's like, well, why didn't you tell me that beforehand? Um, but nonetheless, I mean, it, it, it seems very likely that boosters or some sort of thing mm-hmm. is going to be in our future. Absolutely. We've calculated that there's a specific order of about 20 mutations that will allow the, the Delta or the, the coronavirus to sneak under our current immune responses. And some of the variants now have 10 of those. So that means, you know, given enough time and enough uh, vaccines. Now, there are ways out. You know, if we could vaccinate the whole world tomorrow, we'd mm. really slow that or maybe stop that because there just wouldn't be as many viruses to be mutating all the time. But unfortunately, as you know, people who have friends and relatives in other parts of the world that are just going through absolutely horrific waves, we're not slowing down these infections. And so we're always going to be at risk of reimporting new variants, and we're going to have to be vigilant for a really long time. Dr. Don Bodish from McMaster University, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. My absolute pleasure. Let us take a break here on the Scott Thompson Show. Back right after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We, uh, fingers crossed, touching wood, all the rest of the stuff. We're hoping we're believing that we are on the back end of this whole COVID thing. Anything can happen. We've learned that. But the thought is, hey, you know what? We're, We're getting close to the end. And so time to start thinking about some normal things again. And in Canada, one of those things is immigration. What do we do? How much do we ramp up immigration now that things are back to some or will be soon back to some kind of normal? Well, the number that is being used right now that's being talked about is 400,000 new Canadians this year, which Angus Reid, the Angus Reid polling company, decided to ask Canadians about. What they got was, I think, uh, could be described, and we'll find out if I'm choosing the right words, but I think this could be described as a mixed bag of an answer. 31% say that's about right. 40% say that's too high. 13% say it's too few. So uh, hardly an overwhelming consensus either way. Kind of like Canada, right? We don't, um, we're, we're sort of mixed on an awful lot of things, but... The thing with this one is immigration, as you probably know, is a topic that is fraught with landmines because if you suggest or question immigration or levels of immigration, or if you talk about where the people that we would bring into this country come from or suggest maybe that should be done or anything should be done differently, you may be called some names. You may be 
I don't know, not compassionate. But if you allow too many, you get other names. So we're, it, it's, that's the way this topic goes. It is a flashpoint hot button issue. The truth is though, this is way too important an issue in this country not to discuss as rational people, not hysterically, but seriously. I want to bring in Dave Korzynski. He's the research, research director with the Angus Reid Institute that did this polling. Dave, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Nope. No problem. Thanks for having me, Scott. Would, uh, would mixed bag be the word you would describe, or is there another word you would describe for the results you guys saw? Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. Um, I think we have the, the word divided in the uh, in the headline, um, and that that certainly is is what you get. And and it, there are a lot of really interesting kind of demographic elements to this. You mentioned it's important to discuss this and to to talk about different perspectives. And there there are a lot of them. And depending on how you kind of cut up the data, you get you get different responses. But yeah, as you mentioned. Um, you know, 39% saying that they think the target is too high. What's interesting about that total is um, you can view it a, a couple of ways. Yes, that's a, a big portion of the population. Um, but the number who think that 411,000 is is about right um, is, is still 34%, so just about at that level. And then the number who think that we should actually be adding more uh, to our immigration targets is 13%. So you've got 57% of the population who say, you know, that's fine. Um, or, and if we need to, we can actually, you know, bring in more uh, residents. And I think one of the things that underscores that is the um, the fact that, you know, we, we rely on immigration in, in Canada for a lot of, uh, you know, economic value, population growth. There are, there are you know, real practical uh, elements to this in addition to you know, the humanitarian elements of just allowing people freedom of mobility and to, to come to a country that where they expect to have a good life or whatever their, their reasons are, there really are practical elements to it as well. So I think that's why you see um, that that strong support for the total. And, and the interesting thing, too, um, before I just send it back to you, is that, you know, in 2018, we had 49% saying that the number was too high, and that was 100,000 fewer people. So I think this really speaks to um, the lack of the politicization, if that's a word, of the, um, <laughs> the conversation. Because in 2018, we were up against the background of, you know, the asylum seekers from the United States, the Trump effect, um, some real rhetoric against immigration, and, and people with real uh, hesitation toward just that concept. So we've seen that diminish a little bit. And, you know, despite the fact that targets have risen, we've actually seen opposition drop. So I, mm. I thought that was interesting as well. Let's, I, I want to go with something that you just brought up and this is going to enormously simplify things. And I don't mean simplify necessarily in a good way. We're going to break it down to some way that's probably too simple for what we're talking about, but there, there can, it, you could sort of divide immigration into two different classes as you did. One is the immigration that comes here for um, financial immigration almost. They come here and they immediately have skills that can be uh, injected into our workforce and, and really boost the economy. The other are those who are coming here to seek asylum or to escape from some horrible situation they have in their homeland. Does any of the numbers that you've looked at suggest any thoughts or breakdown on people's attitudes towards what numbers or whether we should admit more of one or more of the other, or is, or is it all just lumped into one? 
Well, for this one, um, we didn't break it down, but I, we have that from uh, 2019 when we ran uh, the same study, and we actually gave those totals, um, which shouldn't have shifted uh, greatly after the pandemic. But basically, the, the way that um, Canada targets it is about, you know, three in five, 57 percent of, of immigrants in 2019 in that target were economic class. Um, immigrants, so you know people who are coming in with skills that are that are prepared to look for for positions. Twenty eight percent family class, so that's you know uh, coming to live with family that already exists here, reunification, that type of program. And then fifteen percent were refugee or humanitarian class uh, immigrants. And we we asked people at the time, um, and I think these would hold pretty well. Uh, do you think those numbers are too low or too high for those particular classes? And you get, you know, as, as might be expected, certainly in, in 2019, the percentage who said that the refugee and humanitarian total is too high was was the highest total at 39% saying that. Um, but about one in three said that all of those are too high. So you do get about one in three. I think those are the kind of... Um, what we would call more more um, opposed to immigration, and we've seen this in other studies as well, that group uh, doesn't necessarily care what the reasoning is. They just think the numbers are too high, and, and they would like to, to have fewer people coming from all of those classes. Canadians are more likely to say that both economic class immigrants and refugee and humanitarian class immigrants um, should be ramped up a little bit. So there's there's uh, about one in five who say that in each case. So you can see that for a certain portion of the population, that economic element is really important. But for a certain portion, you know, the fact that, that Canada can be relied on as a humanitarian nation um, is really important to them as well. So I, it really is a, a mixed bag, as you said. And there's a lot of competing um, ideas of what we're trying to accomplish. But right. you know, largely right. the fact that the fact that these are economic class immigrants for a majority is pretty, uh, you know, of, of the vast majority think that that's the way to do it. Um, and I think that's the way that Canada is planning to go forward. Well, and this is why this becomes such a difficult issue and one that, again, gets so heated and so um, angry at times is because if you suggest that we shouldn't just sort of throw open the gates to everybody who's in a terrible situation somewhere in the world. There are people who say we're being wrong for that. But I'll say this, that I believe, and maybe you do too, I, I expect you probably do, and I think a lot of people listening do, I believe that we have an obligation to help those who we accept into this country if they are that asylum-seeking person. We can't just bring them here and allow them to fail. So there's got to be an ability to not just bring them here, but do something to make sure their life is, in fact, better. Yeah, and that's, you know, the, the supports are very important. And, it, you know, what's interesting about this issue, too, is when you ask Canadians, um, there, this is really kind of dipped into the background. Um, there have been times where this has been a really important issue and something that people are talking about. I think that, you know, the 2016 to 2018 period is a really good example of that. But this is something that's kind of fallen off the radar. We we asked in June what people's top issues were, and only 7% of Canadians said that they view this as a top issue uh, when we allowed them three choices so they could pick from this whole list. And, and only 7% said this is something that they're really concerned about. And I think what's going to happen is that there are going to be a lot of conversations during the, uh, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but there's probably going to be a federal election sometime in the next couple of months. <laughs> really? Um, and I think that this is one of those things where, uh, 
that's when those conversations about not only the totals, but what are the, um, the supports that we're putting in um, for people who are coming in, in uh, a really a, kind of a difficult uh, crisis-type situation, people who are seeking asylum or refugees. Um, because, you know, there are a certain portion of Canadians who really want to be one of the nations that helps those people out. And I, I think you saw that, that divide in uh, during the Trump era when, uh, you know, a lot of uh, refugee targets were, were cut down and immigration from certain countries was, was uh, blacklisted. There were a certain portion of Canadians who really wanted to step up and help those people. But as you mentioned, it is, it is so important to have the right parameters in place to make sure that people who come in are going to have a real chance to um, get settled and start, you know, having um, a really valuable and productive experience in Canada, rather than just going from one really tough situation to a slightly better, but still very tough situation. Um, So I think those are conversations that we're going to see in the coming election, because this 411,000 target is kind of a headline grabber, but it, it, uh, it tends to start conversations and you'll hear from Aaron O'Toole about probably lessening that number a bit. And from Jagmeet Singh about the importance of, uh, you know, continuing to build on that and continuing to fund these programs. Well, and this seems like a, a, a time that is particularly challenging for this discussion um, because of the repercussions of COVID. We, we now have historic levels of debt. I mean, beyond anything we've ever contemplated before. And we have housing crises in cities across this country. And we have our social safety net stretched really thin. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't be compassionate. But again, I go back to the point is, is it compassionate to bring someone here and then not help them? So so how much can we do at this point, understanding what the foundation is that they're coming to? Yeah, and I think that's why it's going to be um, really important for the government to sell um, what, you know, a lot of the research would suggest is kind of the net economic benefit. Um, and I did double-check the number just just quickly, and it is it was 58% of, of immigration in 2020 that was economic class, so those ratios did hold up um, in, the, in the next year that we have data for. Um, so I, I think that's a valuable argument to make, though, is that, um, you know, there are these these very kind of stressed positions in Canada right now, but it's an it's an investment in certain places, you know, particularly in Atlantic Canada. You know, if if you look at what's happened there, um, with just no almost no economic or population growth and really struggling um, economies and and high unemployment rates in certain places, just because there's a lack of workers in in certain places. Um, Immigration has been a real boon there, and we see that in our data as well. That's that's the region of the country that is uh, most likely to say that these numbers, uh, 411,000, is a good target, or it should actually be more. Um, you know, they're more than twice as likely as uh, Albertans and three times as likely as Saskatchewan residents to say that we should increase that number. So you can see that in certain pockets of the country. Um, tougher sell among people who are... Uh, as you mentioned, you know, lower income people are more likely to oppose this, and they're also more likely to to say that they oppose it because of the job situation, because they feel like um, there's extra competition for jobs that you know they're having a really tough time, and particularly after COVID, trying to rebuild and trying to just get established in a nice, comfortable, long term job um, is really hard for a lot of people. And mm. I, th- I think it's understandable. You know, you mentioned. Oh, it's, it's 
really important to view all these different perspectives. It's understandable for somebody to be struggling financially and to not have, you know, an extra person that, that might interview with them um, who might get that job. And I think there's that kind of protection that, that people feel on a personal level, um, which may or may not be justified, but it's certainly something that I think we can empathize with. Well, and, and look, for anyone who's listening who says, you know, the two of you, who us who are talking are you know, are, are glossing over. It's fine. It's, it's really compassionate to bring people here. And this is, it, it may be, and, and we're not saying otherwise, but there's some data that I just read about from the city of Toronto from 2019 said 40% of those living on the streets in Toronto were refugees or asylum seekers. And 80% of those living in shelters in Toronto in 2018 were from those groups. So I mean, there it's fine. It's great. Probably living on the street in Toronto might be a better life than having bombs falling around you in some other part of the world or, or living in fear of your life. But I don't know that we're actually solving all the problems. We have to have solutions. And, and that's where this discussion, I think, really goes. And the idea of compassion, yeah, we should be compassionate, but I think we also have to have some solutions to this rather than saying, hey, bring everybody, because I don't know that that solves anything. Yeah, I think one of the things that you saw, too, during that conversation, when you had so many people, you know, rushing to the border and, and saying, you know, we got to we got to get out of the country or we got to get to to Canada. Um, a lot of the, the concern was that there was no plan and that this was likely to happen. And I think you see some of that play out um, in the really difficult situations that people came into um, where we wanted to see ourselves as that um, that safe third country for for people to come and really just kind of get themselves established and get comfortable and flee the stress that they were experiencing. But, you know, those numbers are really, that's, that's really troubling data as well. So I think that's, it's really important to have the, the practical conversations and the, and the, the policy conversations and make sure that there are programs in place and there's enough, you know, money allocated to, to these programs to make sure that they do thrive because, you know, if there's no plan, that's that's when you end up with the, the data that you just mentioned. Let me throw one more thing at you. We only have a few seconds left here, but you, you touched on the Atlantic uh, region and how they support this. I, I, I'm positive that this would not be legal, nor would it fill, fall in with our freedoms in this country, but could we require newcomers to the country to settle in a particular part of the country? I, I, again, I, I shouldn't say could we. I know we can't. That would be illegal. But would that be helpful somehow if we could say, you're welcome to come here if? And, and again, I, I, I know when I'm even asking that, that that would be illegal. But it seems as though there are some parts of the country that would be for that. Yeah, well, and, and that's what a lot of the provinces do use that provincial nominee program for, is to go out and say, you know, we're, we are looking for newcomers we want to attract people here um and through that program you know they can they can put out a call and say we're we're looking for people if you want to come there's a there's a spot open uh in you know in in nova scotia um and maybe there's not a, a spot open in in uh toronto right now um and i think that's something that that uh, the provinces are trying to leverage um particularly to get people to fill um, you know, positions that are available in economic positions, you know, looking for people who are, are going to arrive and to, are going to have a, a real opportunity to contribute and to, to realize um, a, a, a strong outcome and really, you know, improve their situation, which is ultimately what this is all about, is that having the freedom to go where you want to, to go and having the opportunity to uh, really build something.
That is Dave Korzynski, Research Director with the Angus Reid Institute. Dave, really appreciate the time today. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Uh, you know, it's such an important discussion to have. And again, we tend to get hysterical about this when we talk about immigration, because if you are not in favor of full-fledged immigration, you're accused of being non-compassionate. And if you're in favor of uh, throwing open the gates, you're accused of being non-realistic. But we have to have this discussion as an, as adults in a in a measured way, because either end of that spectrum is problematic. It really is. Either end of that spectrum is problematic. We have to have uh, we have to create situations where the people who come here can then succeed somehow and build a life and we don't just allow all kinds of people to come here and then fail. It's it's there's a balancing act there, but again, it's a really complicated one to talk about because it tends to generate some very 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 strong feelings on either side. <laughs> Almost a third of Canadians who responded to a survey by the University of Saskatchewan admitted they did not stick to all COVID-19 public health orders, saying they broke at least one rule. The most common infractions were around limits imposed on indoor and outdoor gathering and having to mask up. Of those who admitted to not playing by the rules, 62% said they felt they had good reason to break them, like wanting to get together with friends and family and a belief they were violating restrictions in what they thought was a safe way. Some simply said they ignored a certain guideline because they didn't think it made any sense. Younger people across the board were the most likely to break restrictions around gathering sizes. Sandy Salerno, Global News. Scott Thompson Show, Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson. That was Sandy Salerno, as you heard from Global News, telling us about our next topic today, because, you know, we Canadians like to believe that we are rule fo- Well, I don't know if we still do, but at one time we followed the rules. We did what we were told. We, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, during COVID, as you heard, 30% of Canadians say they broke the rules. And why did they break the rules? If you were listening closely, they're really interesting explanation for why. Because I had a good reason to. Okay. All right. Uh, you know, I never got away with that when, at home when I was a kid. If if my parents had said, don't do this. And I said, I did, but I had a really good reason to. That rarely worked. But, you know, I, we're not talking necessarily about kids. And these are interesting times. And, you know, we break rules. It happens. I want to bring in Jason DeSanto, who's the director of the Canadian Hub for Applied and Social Research at the University of Saskatchewan. Jason, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. How are you today? I, listen, I'm great. I, whatever did happen to the stereotype of the compliant, polite Canadian who did everything he or she was told without questioning anything? <laughs> you know, that's a really good question. I mean, uh, yeah, these were really, really interesting data, right? Because we're, you know, we're getting into sort of the, the dying days or the weaning days of the pandemic, or hopefully so. And we were really interested in taking a bit of a, a retrospective look back at the extent to which uh, Canadians coast to coast uh, complied with uh, the various public health guidelines and restrictions that existed across Canada. And as you've indicated, uh, about one third of, of Canadians um willingly indicated that they you know they there was at least one of those guidelines that they uh that they broke and 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 the truth is if we attached everybody to a lie detector machine and injected them with sodium pentothal what would the number really be do you think uh yeah good question i don't really have a (laughs) a, you know a very good or or higher higher yeah i suspect it's higher although not necessarily significantly so again one in three is you know that's that's fairly sizable and i mean 
anecdotally based on what I know, I suspect it's probably not too, too far from the actual percentage. I mean, mm. which, which may be slightly higher, but I think we're, we're pretty darn near close on this. I'll say this though, as I, as I, as I was saying, what happened to the stereotypical Canadian, uh, maybe this suggests the stereotype is accurate because I, if you really think about it, I would have expected a whole lot more than one in three broke a COVID rule. There were a lot of rules and there was a lot of stuff they were asking us to do. I may have expected it would have been two out of three or higher. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, I mean, this is Canada wide, right? So the extent to which, you know, people broke the rules uh, did vary quite a bit from region to region um, with, with, uh, you know, my fellow prairie um, folks who live on the prairies uh, breaking the rules uh, somewhat more often than other areas or regions of the country. Um, but I mean, it, it seems that we've been generally pretty compliant, which which is interesting. Mm. Uh, let me just do a quick survey here. I know we're on the radio, but anybody listening who broke at least one COVID rule, hands up. Yeah, I see. Okay, yeah, way higher than 30%. I got you. Um, here's the other part of the survey, though, that I found really interesting, Jason, or, uh, that of the 30% who admitted to breaking those rules, as I said off the top, the the reason given was that they felt justified doing so, which is a really interesting kind of modern view on rules that if I feel like it's justified, then, you know, the rules don't necessarily apply to me. That, that's a pretty modern thing. I think that's right. That's right. I mean, yeah, the, the reasons that were given for, for sort of these, these various justification that, that were given, I mean, the most commonly or frequently cited was to see uh, friends and family at uh, 27%. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the thing to keep in mind here is, right, we were asking about sort of the entirety of the pandemic. So this is going back to uh, mid-March of, of 2020. And, and quite a bit has happened, uh, you know, in that, in that 15, 15, 16 month time frame. I mean, you know, we've had two Easter holidays, we've had a Christmas. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised that, you know, people broke down at some point to say, you know, I, I, I did this and my reason was to see my parents, my grandparents, brothers, sister, cousins, who, whomever, right? Um, but was all, what was also interesting was um, a quarter of those indicated that, you know, they felt the regulations don't make any sense. Um, mm. There seems to be some confusion in terms of messaging around the uh, public health guidelines and the extent to which people indicated the the regulations don't make sense. Um, quite a bit of variation across the country with uh, uh, actually residents of BC um, most likely to indicate that they don't make sense. So there's certainly some issues around messaging as well. I mean, a lot of people are going to look at your study and a lot of people are going to be taking what they want to take out of it. But with what you just said, I wonder if the lesson here and the people who should be paying closest attention to this is governments that if you want yep. people to follow the rules, don't give them too many rules and don't make them seem arbitrary. And you better darn communicate them clearly as to why they're expected to do this and why it's beneficial to them. Yeah, and I think part of the confusion too is right. We live in a, a, a you know a, a nation of provinces, and each province had their own public health guidelines and public health restrictions. But of course, it wasn't uncommon to watch the news. You know, for me here in Saskatchewan to hear about what the restrictions or guidelines were in, say, Ontario or Quebec or the Atlantic bubble. And, you know, that sort of thing does lend itself to a bit of confusion in terms of, well, what was that rule now? Right. Um, so so there's that piece of it. And the other piece is also just in terms of how they're conveying that messaging. Uh, yes. We also asked as part of the same survey where people are getting their information uh, about the pandemic and 
you know, while we're seeing folks getting their their information from, you know, reputable, legitimate news sources, we're also seeing a, a fairly sizable percentage indicating that they're getting it from things like uh, social media, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. So, um, you know, that that's playing into it, to, into it as well. But definitely the messaging and how that message is getting out is incredibly important. Look, we all know, anyone who's ever had a press release from government knows there is such thing as government speak. There's government yeah. talk, there is bureaucraties. And, you know, maybe, again, using this as an example for the future, you get people to convey the message in actual English so the people get the straight goods rather than getting caught up in the stuff. And again, I go back to my, my my point. If it's not clear and if people don't understand clearly why this is of benefit to them and why they need to follow the rules, I think you're asking them not to. Yeah, I mean, people people really want to know, you know, how does this impact me, right? What does this, exactly. what does this mean for me? And and I think it really, just, you know, it's, it's really about distilling it down to sort of the basic information so people can sort of picture how that guideline would apply to their day-to-day lives. There was something we talked about on the show yesterday that also follows this. Obviously, you weren't here yesterday, but it was the idea that over the course of COVID, now it's a moving target, I grant you, I don't want to be too critical here, but many of our medical leaders were coming up with suggestions or guidelines and then changing those shortly after. That stuff also probably, when they seem to contradict themselves, doesn't help people figure out what they're supposed to do or find it plausible or find it urgently necessary to be listening anymore. Yeah, for sure. I mean, going back to the early days of the pandemic when, you know, people were, governments and public health authorities responding uh, incredibly quickly to the pandemic. I mean, things were shifting um, very, very rapidly and, and admittedly very difficult for people to to keep on top of, of the messaging. I mean, I think of even things like, you know, the, the vaccine rollout here in Saskatchewan. I mean, um, the way it's being communicated, I'm seeing, you know, communications on media and social media, but not necessarily everyone's going to pick that up and, and pick up sort of the nuances, right? They may miss, for example, did the age ranges drop? Who's eligible now? Who's not eligible? And mm-hmm. I mean, the information is coming so fast and furious that admittedly it is difficult for people to to stay on top of it. There is something in this survey, though, above everything else that blew my mind and uh, just it, it made me fear for the future of humanity, quite honestly. And that's 71% of people were getting their information from word of mouth, which is just, if you think about that, like we're talking about a disease that whether you believe in it or not, people were dying, people were getting sick. That's not exactly diving into reputable sources to find out what the truth is. If Aunt Sally said that, oh, you know what, this happened, apparently that's where people were getting their information. That's terrifying. It is. I mean, of course, you know, information can get diluted or altered as it, as it moves from, you know, person to person. So, uh, again, I think one of the big lessons coming out of the current pandemic is 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 really about messaging and, and being very clear and consistent in, in messaging, because um, one of the things that we've learned coming out of out of this, this current pandemic is, you know, information can travel quickly and whether it's the correct information or inaccurate information um, you know, it, it definitely impacts sort of people's perceptions and, and how they respond to things. Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, I don't want to be too over the top, but what happened to the idea of an informed populace? Like, cause I truly believe that 30 years ago, maybe even not that much, something like this happens. People are looking to reputable sources to get their information rather than going on Twitter or Facebook or TikTok and saying, oh, yeah. well, I saw it there. So it must be true. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the big difference, though, and you just you just said it yourself, is you, you know these these other alternative sources of information just didn't exist um, even even 15 years ago. So um, you know, I, I think it really it, a big part of the onus lies on government to ensure that you know whatever the messaging is, it's getting out through all means and media possible. Of course, again, the challenge is with social media, it's a bit of bit of the wild wild west, right? Um, you know, there's there's only so much that they can do in terms of um, the information that's that's shared through social media. So it's definitely a challenge moving forward in terms of, you know, accuracy or inaccuracy of information and news getting out. And, and we've heard, I mean, the government wants to, in some cases, block what they call fake news or whatever else. I'm not sure that that is the answer because that all that does is spawn then people believing in conspiracy theories because if the government doesn't want us to know it, the, the obligation is on getting the message out better than you did. It's on it's on improving your message rather than just trying to shut everything else out. Absolutely. Being very clear, very concise. And again, I think what I said earlier is just, you know, giving giving people a sense of how, you know, it, it applies to them in their day to day to day lives so they can they can see how it applies and understand it better. So they're not sort of left wondering and, and making some of those decisions or judgments on their own. I'm not blaming kids for this one. I'm not even blaming millennials or Gen Z or anything because, listen, we, we know that there are older people who read stuff on social media or online and believe it without really digging into it and finding out. But it does make me wonder if, I mean, how much of a job is it going to be the next time something like this happens to get through to people in a way or to convince them that, there is a better way than just reading the first thing you see on Twitter. It seems like, and it's not, and again, it's not just a generational thing. It's across the board. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I think it's, it's going to come back to, because again, social media is still a fairly new phenomenon. Although of course, word of mouth has been around for you know forever. Um, it, I think it's really, it, it really comes down to education and educating the, the populace. And I think it also comes, you know, it, it should be part of the curriculum for, for kids, high school students now to be perhaps better, uh, be more judicious about the information that they're consuming, um, particularly when it comes to to social media, um, because it is still a fairly new phenomenon, right? This is something that we're still uh, social media is still something that we're learning to use and, and live with, and and I think we're we're sort of learning um, how you know the, the role that this plays in our day to day lives. I don't know that this is a fair question for you, honestly, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, if 30% at least, because they're the ones who admitted it, if 30% mm-hmm. at least of Canadians didn't follow at least one COVID rule, what are the chances do you think that COVID lasted as long as it did and still is going on because of that? I mean, if everybody had followed the rules, do you think there's a chance we would have been out of it long before now? Uh, I, I, I don't think that's likely the case. I think, you know, perhaps numbers would have been lower, right? I mean, if, if you look at some of the data that exists, so some of the provinces that had more stringent um, public health guidelines or measures, so for example, the Atlantic provinces or the Atlantic bubble, as they called it, I mean, their case numbers were significantly, significant, significantly lower than other jurisdictions in Canada, um, particularly compared to, say, here in Saskatchewan or Alberta, where the, the restrictions were much more lax. Um, you know, we did see quite a bit of a difference in terms of um, what what the infection rates were. So I think to some extent that plays into it, but I don't think that necessarily tells the entirety uh, of the story. I think as we're getting down to hopefully the sort of the, the weaning days of this pandemic, um, I do think that may come into play. Um, but I don't necessarily think that, 
you know, um, it, it may have slowed it down, but it certainly wouldn't have uh, uh, ended the pandemic in any way. Are you optimistic that the lessons that you've highlighted through this and that we've been talking about, are you optimistic that those lessons will be learned and that next you know, time, hopefully not like this, but the next time something happens that we'll do better? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I can only say I, I hope so. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think there was, there's yeah. a lot of a lot of lessons learned. I mean, this was really like a true, you know, true, true to life experiment that we've all been through to some extent in the last 15, 16 months. And um, I think there there certainly is a lot to be learned in terms of what's worked and what hasn't worked. And, um, you know, the extent to which that will be um, considered in the future should, you know, we be faced with a pandemic, another pandemic in our lifetime or, or you know, in, in subsequent generations. I, I don't know. I mean, I think if you look at for even just anecdotally what we've been doing in Canada over the last 15, 16 months, I mean, there's such divergence in terms of the restrictions that were in place. Again, you know, with the Atlantic provinces on sort of one end of the spectrum and say, you know, Alberta, Saskatchewan on the other end of the spectrum. Um, you know, if, if, if they were sort of basing decisions on evidence, um, you know, the provinces probably would have been been more consistent in terms of looking at one another and actually drawing on the the, the provinces or jurisdictions that were actually successful, but that, that really didn't happen, right? Um, we saw provinces and, and territories kind of doing their own thing, um, in, in large part, I think, uh, very much politically motivated, and that's, you know, that's fine, that's to be expected uh, nowadays. So I, I don't know, I, I think the pessimist in me is, is, is sort of leaning towards, um, we learned a lot and there's a lot that we can take from it, but it likely won't have too big of an impact uh, moving forward, unfortunately. See, you say pessimist, I say realist, but either way, it's a, <laughs> uh, Jason DeSanto, Director of the Canadian Hub for Applied and Social Research at the University of Saskatchewan. Really, thanks for doing this. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. Uh, you know, and, and for those people that I asked a few moments ago to, you know, jokingly halfway, but put your hands up if you broke any rule of COVID. And I, I'm guessing many of you either did or would have if it was a real thing. Uh, here's the point about that. And and I think it's a lesson to government as well. I don't necessarily think that everybody who put their hand up is someone who deserves scorn because I think that some of the rules were either so poorly explained or so, um, poorly applied, or in some cases, maybe they really were unnecessary, but this goes back to the point government. One thing government loves to do is put in rules. Go back to the early days of any city and look at the list of bylaws and look at the list of bylaws. Now, people, if you work for government, what's your job? Your job is to create rules. You build volumes of rules. Maybe we need less rules. We need to concentrate on the rules that really matter so that people will then follow those rules because we don't have an, a million of them and we go, well, that's stupid. Why am I doing that? It makes no sense. If we had rules that only the rules that matter to govern our lives, maybe we'd follow them a lot more closely and we wouldn't dismiss them so easily like apparently we've done with COVID. Do I think that governments and politicians are going to suddenly decide to make fewer rules or retract some of the ones that are in place? Ha! <laughs> oh, oh, I make myself laugh. Never, never, but it would be a good idea. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Not so much fun if you're a Montreal Canadiens fan last night. Um, 
You know how they usually chant "Ole, Ole, Ole." Yeah, they were going "Oy vey, Oy vey." Yeah, it was bad. It was uh, it was a rough game for the Montreal Canadiens last night. Oh, that the 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 Cinderella run that had seemed like it was never going to end, and it still may not. But boy, it seems like Tampa Bay is a bit of a buzzsaw and a buzzkill if you're a Montreal fan, as I say, because boy, those Tampa Bay Lightning look like a pretty, pretty, pretty darn impressive team, and you are going to have to be pretty impressive. More than pretty impressive to beat them. I want to bring in Rick Zamperin, sports director here at 900 CHML. Does a million other things at the station. He joins us now. Rick, how are you this afternoon? Hey, Scott, how are you? Well, probably better than uh, Carey Price and the Montreal Canadiens. I don't know. He's doing pretty good. He's, he's doing well, pretty good. Five goal. I mean, look, last night I thought he played very, very well. Yeah. And they still got five goals. And if I'm Montreal, I'm looking at this thinking do we chalk this up just to bad bounces and a few unlucky breaks like some people are, or do we look at this and go, boy, oh boy, this is uh, this is a handful? Well, you can look at it one of two ways. I mean, you can say that Tampa Bay won the battle of the breaks. Let's not forget that Hamilton's Ben Chirot scored for Montreal last night, but his goal was more of a pool shot than anything else and went off two different skates and two different players and in the net. So you can really make a case that Montreal didn't, you know, provide enough offense or present enough of a danger to Andre Vasilevsky, that's for sure, uh, who looked really good last night as well. But what killed the Habs last night, I think, were a couple of things. Number one, turnovers especially. Uh, you know, we've seen teams make turnovers and it doesn't really generate into offense or, or even a scoring chance or, or a goal. Last night it did. You know, Tampa Bay took advantage of a couple of key turnovers and it was in the back of the net. Um, the other thing, too, at least in my opinion, you know, Tampa's the defending champs. They've been here before. I think this, this is their third trip to the final in five years or something to that effect. It was the first time in 28 years that Montreal has been to the final. Not, there aren't many players on this team that have been to the final. Corey Perry is a ring. There's other team, other players on this team who have been in a ring or who have uh, won a ring or have been in an Olympic gold medal game. So they played in some big games. But for the most part, you know, this is a new thing to the Habs. And to me, they look almost like a, in the first period, like a deer in the headlights. Like, you know, we didn't expect Tampa be this good and this fast and this tough and this edgy and this rugged and this offensively gifted, and they were all that and then some. Tampa's a tough nut to crack, and Montreal is going to have to really get a head around how to beat these guys, or else it could be a short series. Uh, yeah, and, and look, I, I don't want to be totally, uh, for the Montreal fans out there, I don't want to be totally negative, but boy, it does look like Corey Price, uh, Corey, Carey Price, Who's Corey Price? I don't know. <laughs> Carey Price. You said Corey Perry. That threw me off. Carey Price is going to have to be almost perfect this series. I, Montreal may be able to put together enough offense to win, though they showed none of that yesterday. Uh, but if Carey Price is not Carey Price at his absolute finest, they have no chance. It, uh, especially the first couple of periods last night. And, you know, I didn't watch all of the third because I had to get into bed, but I did watch, you know, uh, the third period today in, in, in rollback uh, on my PVR. And Tampa was all over Montreal again in the third, and they really didn't lift their foot off the pedal. They just kept on coming. And I think that's going to be the case in Game 2 and in Game 3 and in Game 4, and who knows for how much longer after that. Montreal almost has to, and, and they've kind of done it along the lines of playing an almost perfect game in the playoffs. Don't turn the puck over, play stout defensively, rely on Carey Price when things do go awry, and get that opportune goal, win the game in overtime, but last night it just was not working, and I'm not sure what they can do differently to turn the tables because Tampa is who they are, and Montreal is who they are. They're not going to all of a sudden change the way they play the game. 
they have to play smart hockey and responsible hockey. Otherwise, the puck's in the back of the net. We saw that five times last night. Here's the big difference uh, that I see, and you feel free to disagree with me, but I think Tampa has the the, the bodies and the roster to be a little more flexible. They can play a number of different styles. How, if mm-hmm. you want to play bashing, we'll bash with you. If you want to go end to end and skate, we can skate with you. They can, they can play a bunch of different ways. Montreal, they have got here by playing a single style that has been very effective. But I, if Montreal gets out of that style, they go back to being the 18th place team in the league again. Yeah, and you know, case in point, they don't score first. They're they're not playing their game. They are a you know score first, take a two one lead into the third, lock down the you know minimize the offensive chances. I totally agree with you. Tampa Bay can play however you want to play. They can beat you eight nothing like they did the Islanders, or they can beat you you know one nothing in Game Seven against the Islanders, and they can play that rugged, tight checking you know uh, muck it out and behind the net uh, you know win those tough battles kind of hockey game. So. Whatever the Habs, uh, you know, feel like doing, uh, you know, Tampa is right there to, you know, volley back that serve, and they're well mm. equipped to play however you want to play. My son and I were sitting on the couch yesterday watching the beginning of the game, and when Tampa scored, I turned to him and I said, "That's the end of the game," because Montreal cannot win. It seems in these playoffs if they don't score first. I said, "Game over," and he said, "Come on!" and for once dad was right but i mean it's 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 just it that is you're right montreal seems to have to score the first goal or they are not going to have success and again it's it, it is a uh, it is going to be a a slog uh, by the way I, thinking about these playoffs you've got tampa and montreal in the finals both in the same division usually in the nhl the atlantic mm-hmm. division the same division that has the Bruins and the Leafs and the Florida Panthers and Ottawa that is improving, that division next year is going to be goofy. Uh, isn't Carolina in that division as well? I mean, <laughs> this is an embarrassment of riches. You know, uh, as long as we have the Buffalo Sabres, I think we're okay. Uh, but beyond that, but yeah, even they can't possibly be as bad <laughs> next year as they were this year. If you're a Sabres fan, I hope not. But still, yeah, there is a lot of top-level talent in that division, whether it's goaltending, defensemen, offensive stars, you know, really good head coaches. Yeah, the Atlantic is going to be a juggernaut next year. So, you know, if you're a Leafs fan or or even a Habs fan, I mean, this is the year to win it all. Uh, You know, unfortunately for Leafs, they're not even in the final. But if you're a Habs fan, I mean, if this isn't the year, it could be another 28 years before you get back to the final. Because, you know, hey, Gary Price isn't getting any younger. Uh, you know, the next set of stars are emerging in the Kotkaniemis and the Suzuki's and the Caulfields. But, wow, it takes uh, it takes a lot of, you know, lucky bounces and extremely good play to get here. And, and I think Habs fans are realizing how tough it is to get here. I want to switch just very quickly. we got a couple minutes. Um, rumors out of Toronto. I don't know where the rumors are coming from, but yesterday Twitter all of a sudden went berserk with reports that the Toronto Raptors are shopping Pascal Siakam yeah. to Golden State. W- what do you make of it? I mean, do you look at a guy like him and say, you know what? He may have peaked uh, the championship year. He was great. But now that he's the guy rather than a complimentary part, you know, if we can move him and his big contract and get something else, that's a good move. Or do you look and go, man, that is a panic move if they deal him? You know, I think it's a panic move just because I think he still has a lot to offer. Uh, I'm not sure if he's hit his peak. I do know that he needs, uh, you know, a bonafide sidekick. Obviously, with Kawhi Leonard, you know, you're focused on Kawhi and Pascal was able to shine. I think he needs maybe not necessarily a superstar, but someone who is as talented and as dangerous in all 
parts of the court as he to be as successful. I don't think he's a max contract guy. I think that was the mistake that they made. They should have realized that, hey, without Kawhi, this guy's going to be a different player. But shopping him around isn't a new thing. It came after the bubble last year when he had a horrible bubble, you know, and, and, and the Raptors were thinking, you know, do we, do we ship him now before the max contract kicks in? But heck, it kicked in. He didn't have a tremendous season. He didn't have a horrible season either. But to my mind, he's not a max contract guy. And if you can get something great in terms of a physical asset or a few draft picks, you know, this team, I think, can quickly rebuild depending on how, you know, what, how Cal uh, Lowry in that situation uh, goes down, what is going on in the Masai Ujiri world right now. You know, if Tom mm-hmm. Webster is giving the keys to this, you know, uh, Raptors car, how is he going to remodel it? Uh, getting rid of Siakam is going to bring you a lot in return, but is now the time to do it? I'm not quite sure. I'd, I'd rather add than delete right now for the Raptors. I wonder how much the perception of Pascal Siakam has been affected by the fact that he was something like oh for 9,000 on last shots of the game in the last two <laughs> yeah. years. He could not hit a bucket when the game was online. Not a bad player the rest of the time, often pretty good, but put the ball in his hands with a must-hit shot and the last play of the game, and you may as well have given it to me or you. And I think that affects people's view of him. Yeah, another example of why you just can't be a max contract guy. Those are the guys you want to have the ball in their hands with the last shot, the last minute, the game on the line. You know, look at the Chris Pauls of the world, the Trey Youngs. You know, these guys rise to the occasion. Steph Curry, they they get the job done in crunch time. And Pascal, at least over the last couple of years, just has not been able to do it. One more thing I want to ask you about, and we do have to run here. Uh, this story I just found to be, it almost, it, it kind of enraged me and maybe it won't you, but uh, Scotty Pippen was talking to Dan Patrick on the radio yesterday or the day before and has now said that uh, Phil Jackson, his coach in Chicago for the years of the, uh, of the dynasty there, is a racist because mm-hmm. back in a 1994 playoff game, Phil Jackson drew up a play that gave Tony Kukoc, a white guy, the last shot as opposed <laughs> to Scotty Pippen. And even though Tony Kukoc made the game-winning shot, which showed that it was the right call, Pippen says this shows that Phil Jackson is a racist, which I just... How how in the world going forward, Rick, if these are things as a coach, when your job is to win, but now you have to factor in, well, how is this going to be perceived, my call? How are you possibly going to do that job? Wow. You know, coming from Dennis Rodman, you got to take it with a grain of salt. Um, But... You know, if that's the way he feels, I feel sorry for him because as a coach, you know, you're looking to win the game and you don't care who gets the job done. If you have confidence in an individual, no matter what their skin color, no matter what their nationality, no matter what their religious belief is, you're going to give the ball or the puck or whatever to that person. You're not going to base it on race or color or anything. You're going to base it on the gut feeling that you have at that moment to say, I believe in this guy to get the job done. Uh, how many game-winning shots did Michael Jordan take? Um, how many uh, you know, non-whites were on the Chicago Bulls all those years? I mean, that is a horrendous comment from Dennis Rodman. Yeah, I just, boy, it, it, as a teammate even, like who, who cares? Yeah. Who, do, do you think the Raptors cared that Kawhi Leonard got that last shot that bounced in, or do you think they cared that it went in? Yeah, it went in, and who cares who took it? He's part. He's he's on our team. We're a team. We have so many different players from different backgrounds, race, religion, color. That uh, you know, the, sports is the ultimate melting pot in terms of that dynamic. Uh, yeah, I, I think Dennis Rodman's blowing smoke here. Yeah, it's uh, I, this is what gets me mad about. Like, it, it, surely you got to come with more if you're going to accuse somebody of that kind of thing. 
saying that I didn't get the last shot, therefore there were other factors or what. Mm. That, that. Did, I mean, did Dennis Rodman say that he was expecting the last shot? I mean, when was the last time he ever took a last shot? Well, that's a great question. Uh, Dan Patrick will have to ask him that on, on the next time around. <laughs> Coming up, yeah. Uh, Rick Zanfran, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. You got it. Have a good one. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.